0: listen to this baloney he won't know he doesn't
1: stand for baloney sounds like a lot of supernatural baloney to me supernatural perhaps
0: baloney perhaps not Good evening and welcome. You're tuned into the best in Paranormal Talk Radio. Tonight we present The Devil Made Me Do It. Joining us tonight, a good friend of our program, he is a paranormal investigator, author, writer, researcher. He is the host of our New England Legends podcast. We'll have a link for that on today's show as well. It is our good friend, Jeff Belanger. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Dave, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So this is, this is an interesting case, right? And, you know, the time that it happened shortly after the exorcist movie had come out, right? Just at the beginning of the satanic panic that was going on in the eighties. And you've got this interesting case that involves demonic possession and exorcism that goes horribly awry and a murder that may be attached to this. The concept that the devil is involved in our bad activities, right? Nobody wants to to believe that our neighbor, our friend, our lover could be a killer, that we could have been so close to this person all along and not realizing the power that they might actually wield and what kind of anger and rage lies just underneath the surface. We almost want to put that off on something, especially supernatural, right? It must be an influence of the devil. We saw that mm-hmm. unfortunately with with the death and suicide of our friends, Mark and Debbie Constantino. And people immediately jumped to the fact that there must have been demonic influence, spiritual influence, something that caused this couple to break down the way they did and end in murder-suicide. Knowing what we know from the outset, you and I have been very vocal about the fact that it's probably just two people that were in a very dysfunctional, alcoholic relationship, and that's what really took place. But it shows the willingness of people to want to put that somewhere besides on just the human dynamic of who we are.
1: The devil's always been a scapegoat, right? Always. Uh, Puritans used to have erotic dreams and they would say, wait a minute, I'm of pure heart. I go to church. I pray every day. I read the Bible. Uh, Obviously, this is an incubus or a succubus. This is a, a a demon coming to me in my sleep and trying to tempt me. There's no way that came from within me. Uh, so, therefore, it's a, it's an external force. Um, I'm a good person, yet I just did a horrible thing. Therefore, it must not have been me. I, I think of myself as a good person. So, some horrible influence must have taken over devil, demon, whatever. The reality is, as we know, there is evil in the world. I mean, just right. look at the news, right? People do unspeakable acts, horrible atrocities. Uh, mass murder, uh, just every horrible thing you can do to a person, people do it. Uh, we also know, thankfully, that there's good in the world. We've seen it. Mm-hmm. We've seen uh, just acts of kindness from random small acts to just big things and everything in between. And I think all those forces are within all of us. And some of us, uh, you know, kind of yield to one more than the other. And and uh, depending on your moral compass, your upbringing, the influences around you um, you know, we, we, we tend to lean either way. That being said, I do recognize that some people do have their problems, right? Drug addiction, alcoholism, stuff like that. And if you want to call that a demon or a monkey on your back, I get it. I get it. But at the ultimate, ultimately you have to still take responsibility for your actions at some point.
0: Now, here's where it gets interesting. Obviously we have logic on our side to, to be able to look at these cases in a somewhat rational way. But we've also worked in the paranormal field and know quite a few people that have dealt with dark presence, Mm -hmm. uh, demonic infestations, people that we know, like, and trust. So should we be so quick to dismiss the concept that something demonic could, in fact, affect someone to create violence or do something outside of their nature is possibly prone to it? And that's what the devil, that's what the evil is looking for, is that person that already has that fracture so that they can enter and move through them
1: i love the jewish concept of uh spirit attachment uh the dybbuk right mm-hmm. so uh, a dybbuk uh, it, it means like cling or cleave to and uh, a dybbuk can be good uh if, mm-hmm. if you're of the jewish faith uh, a spirit could attach itself to you like you're trying to quit smoking and a, a spirit that did that in life might attach itself to you and sort of help you through that. And then once you quit smoking, it leaves you peacefully and everything's fine. However, the, there can be sort of like bad influence divics. You want to do drugs. You want to rob a liquor store. Um, a spirit that might have done that in life might cling to you. And there is a Jewish exorcism. And, and it's quite beautiful, actually. The, the rabbi will blow the shofar. To, it's like this ram horn to try to separate the, the human and the, the, the spirit attachment and then heal them both, right? Heal the mm. spirit. Go, go forth. You don't need to be here anymore. You, you, you have rights and you should be happy too. And, and the person, of course, needs to be left alone. And so I, I like the idea that uh, like is drawn to like. So, yes, while I think dark forces can be let in, you put yourself into a place to allow those dark forces in. And mm-hmm. so, ultimately, whatever bad thing happens, still you got to put the blame on the person, not on the the demonic force, right? Like, I, I you know, wh- what's first, the cart to the horse, right? I, I, you know, uh, I get it, but I think all of us have a responsibility to be good neighbors, good citizens, and and work to keep those forces away, so we're not a danger to others. I mean, hopefully not ourselves either, but at the very mm-hmm. least, not a danger to others.
0: Now, that's where this case that we're going to talk about tonight gets sticky because, again, you we've always been told you have to invite this in. You have to be kind of a willing participant, yet David Glatzel was not a willing participant, and why would he be affected? So we'll discuss that. Now, uh, for those of you that don't know, this case, again, one of the famous cases by Adam Lorraine Warren. I, I want to start a little bit with history from you jeff Mm -hmm. aside from them just being these legendary figures that many of us only know through the movies and books uh, i know i was lucky enough to meet lorraine two or three occasions and have her on the show three or four times throughout the years but you actually grew up knowing the warrens and working with them right so talk to me a little bit about that
1: yeah and in fact this case this conjuring three devil made me do it case is pretty special because uh to me anyway, it's personal. It started in Newtown, Connecticut, which is where I grew up. So Newtown, geographically, is on the western side of Connecticut. And it is the town just uh, to the north of Monroe, which is where Ed and Lorraine Warren live, and just south of Brookfield, which is where this exorcism and the, the, the case would really take off. So we're talking about three towns in a row, and not very big towns. So growing up uh, in Newtown in the 80s, the Warrens were like local celebrities. The first time I met them was October and they were giving a program at the library, you know, just like I do now, (laughs) you know, like just uh, 20, 30 people locals get invited to the library and the Warrens would share their, you know, share their, their, their case files and play audio clips and show a literal slideshow with like a slide projector and talk about some of the stuff they did. And I was just so intrigued because I had friends who claimed their houses were haunted in town. Uh, Nothing scary, but just matter of fact, in Newtown, you know, I remember there was a place right on Main Street, there was this, uh, it was a home that was turned into a business. And people would say like, oh, you know, that house is really haunted, like scary haunted. And you'd be like, okay, whatever. And then someone would say, no, no, the Warrens checked it out. And like, that was the end of it, right? That's the last word. Oh, oh, well, maybe it is then fair enough. Um, So that's where I first met them. And as I got older, you know, you'd go see them every fall, you'd go see their Halloween program where they'd share real ghost stories. And then when I started to become a writer in in college, uh, I started interviewing them. So I'd go to their house and I'd get to like go through their museum and interview Ed and Lorraine and sit in their kitchen. And so, yeah, I I first met them when I was 12 and just, you know, uh, Lorraine went to our church and you'd see them in the grocery stores. And like I said, very much, local celebrities, right? Not big mobs, nothing. They are way more famous today than they ever were back then.
0: Getting a chance to sit down with them in in their natural environment. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot said about Ed and Lorraine Warren, a lot of conjecture of were they fakes? Were they real? You had a chance to see and be around them. Did they take this as seriously at home? Was it a little bit more glib and light or were they always kind of in that
1: serious tonality about what they were dealing with? So Lorraine, and you know, because you've met her, Lorraine was like everybody's grandma. And she was like that in the 80s, too, even before Mm -hmm. she got as old. I mean, you know, she lived, what, 90? 92. Yeah. Yeah. So when she was like, you expect a woman in her 80s to be grandmotherly. But even, you know, 20 years before that, when she was in her 60s, she was just, she called everybody honey. You know, just like, Mm -hmm. honey, let me tell you, honey. And just, you know, very sweetheart, kind-hearted people, both of them. Ed was very funny. Um, He could be (laughs) funny and charming, and then he could turn on a dime and get real serious when talking about demons. So at our little library programs, you know, he'd just be like working the audience like, oh, anybody see a ghost? Yeah. Ghostbusters. Sure. Right. You know, and just like funny and charming and then just stop and be like, let's talk about something real, though, something that really happened. And he could the room would just sort of be like, "Ooh," you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you'd kind of get choked up. Um, I sat in their kitchen once interviewing them. And their phone, this is, you know, uh, 1996, maybe. And the phone used to just ring all the time because their phone number was listed. There was really no internet yet. I mean, there was internet, but no one, they didn't have it. You know, I mean, it was people weren't using it widely. And the phone rang all the time. And Lorraine would just pick it up. And I would hear, you know, that side of the conversation over and over. And it was, Dave, it was the same almost every time. Hello? Yes, honey. Yeah, this is Lorraine Warren. Oh, oh, honey, that sounds bad. Oh, honey, is there a Ouija board in the house? Oh, you got to get rid of that, honey. You got to get rid of that right away. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good luck to you. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. And then it would ring again. And that same phone call, like, is there a Ouija board? Yep. There's a Ouija board. And they, and over and over and again, they would just, but they would take the call and they would talk to people. It was amazing.
0: Yeah, I know, in talking with Lorraine on our show and meeting her at a few live events, talking to her off stage, she would tell me that uh, they answered the phone day or night because you never knew when something horrific might happen. And I know she took it very seriously in concern for these people that uh, that would call in. Do you know that there was a movie about this case in 1983 that was released? I didn't know that. And here's hmm. one of the stars of the movie. This is a scene from the movie, Kevin Bacon. It's one of his first acting roles. And guess who played the, they, they didn't have the legal rights to, to Ed and Lorraine's story, but they were, they were writing it off of everything that was being told in the news. Uh, yeah. So this is the movie and it is on, on YouTube, the demon murder case from 1983, <laughs> starring Andy Griffith as Ed <laughs> Warren.
1: Andy Griffith and yeah. uh, Kevin Bacon, of course, lives in Connecticut now. Yeah. So, so not far from Brookfield. Pretty
0: cool. And it is, like I said, it's on YouTube. You can go watch the full 1980s cheese ball effect. But I just, I had a laugh when I read that uh, that that Andy Griffith played the Ed Warren character, although he's not Ed Warren, but he and his wife right. are the the paranormal investigators and they go out. So it's worth a watch. Go check it out on, uh, on the YouTubes.
1: The the first conjuring, the the house in Rhode Island, um, right? They never talked about that case ever, ever, mm. ever, ever, right? Like not once. This one, this one, they talked about. They talked about mm-hmm. it quite a bit. Even I remember hearing about it because, I mean, shoot, we were Ground Zero. You know, I remember Ed saying right. this all started here in Newtown. You know, and uh, and and then it went to Brookfield, and, and you know, Brook, there you, you drive it's just a couple miles, and you're in Brookfield. So. It was um it really hit home to think like wow, this this horrible evil thing uh happened in our town. And not only that, I remember, I mean, I remember hearing stories as a kid. This was the satanic panic, this was the 80s, and mm-hmm. they'd say, you know, that there's a there's a pentagram, and Newtown is one of the points on the pentagram, which by the way, any town on earth could be a point on a pentagram, right? It just wherever you start it, right? <laughs> right? Um, but still, it was one of those things that went around and you went, Whoa, look, if you line up a pentagram. You could put the top right on Newtown, and then you're like, you can, sure, yeah. you can. You but where does the
0: mean? rest of the the yeah. star go? What does it touch? in if it's touching Amityville and and uh, Rhode Island, and it's touching all these major haunted places, then maybe you've got something. Then we're talking about a paranormal ley line situation, right?
1: Right. So, it, but it was it was a uh, you know because uh, Ed would tell us there's satanic cults in town. The police call us in. Uh, when they find things they don't understand. And we we gather that stuff and bring it back to our museum. And and Ed's attached museum, th- their house in Monroe was at the end of a cul-de-sac. I just like It was like off the main drag, Route 25, there was this street. And then they were at the end. And it was just a, a simple split-level ranch. You know, they weren't wealthy people. It was a, a middle-class house with like this attached building that was the museum. And every kind of thing in there from Annabelle. I remember meeting Annabelle face-to-face when I was, uh, you know, uh, the first time I was at their museum, which I was probably like 16, I guess, when I was in there. And and, and the real Annabelle scared me way more than anything in the movie. Because right. the movie one, right? Like, you bring that that the movie doll home for your, your daughter. Your daughter would be like, yeah, get it away, right? No one's right. cuddling with that thing. But the real one, of course, is a Raggedy Ann doll. And my sister had the same one on her bed, the exact same. And I was just like, oh, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. That's scarier to me than like that horrific thing in the movie. Well, this case that we're talking
0: about opens up 41 years ago. It, it starts off with this just very basic part of life, right? There's a family and, and the daughter and her boyfriend are about to strike out on their own and rent a place and kind of live their own lives. And things take a twist. They take a really bizarre turn
1: it's complicated this one. So just to set it up, uh, Debbie Glatzel, she's 26 years old and she has a seven year old son and her boyfriend is Arnie Johnson. He's 18. And before you start doing the math, uh, the son was from a previous relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're living in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is a city. And, and at that time, not the nicest city that you could be in. Debbie has a roommate who has three daughters she's divorced and so they're they're all in this this apartment they're trying to get by and so they figure hey if we pool all our money we could move out of uh out of bridgeport and there's this house in newtown that's perfect and arnie is a tree surgeon and a landscaper and you know you're better off being out in the country than in the city where you know people Mm -hmm. actually need your services so they find this house and it's a house with like an attached apartment and the idea is that arnie and debbie and debbie's son will live in the house And the attached apartment will be perfect for uh, Debbie's roommate and her three children, and they can all live there. Need some fixing up, need some TLC, but that's okay. Arnie's young, he's ready to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's July 1st that they arrive at the house in Newtown. And immediately there are problems. Uh, For example, the furniture from the previous tenant is still there, some of it. And they're like, ah, come on, you know? So that's already a problem. Problem two is that the attached apartment... There's a woman living there, and it's the daughter of the landlord. This, is, And she's like, I have no intention of leaving anytime soon. And so now, like, so, so big problems, right? Like, right. just from the minute you get up there. Now, uh, Debbie's family, the Glatzels, have come over from Brookfield to help move in. Again, just a couple miles up the road. Just, you know, there happens to be a town line in between. And so Debbie's three younger brothers come in, and Debbie's mother walks in, and she's the first one to say, this house doesn't feel right. Never mind the furniture. Never mind that the, you know, the landlord's kid's still in the attached apartment. This place just doesn't feel right, and she's uncomfortable. And so already, like, imagine that. Imagine you're you're ready to like you've and you've by the way you've pulled every penny you have to pull this off, right? You, there's no wiggle room financially. So you get there, and it's just problems. But of course. It's about to get a lot worse.
0: Let's dig into that. And then I want to kind of do a comparison to another very famous case uh, that the Warrens also had a, a hand in. But you, you get them in there, uh, you know, David Glatzel and Alan, I believe, is the other son, uh, brother. Correct. They come in to help and mm-hmm. things start to occur. Uh what exactly is that timeline? Do you know? I mean, is it that day as they're moving stuff around?
1: Yep. So it's day one and Debbie's putting her brothers to work as you would on move in day. So she tells her, her youngest brother, David, who's 11 years old at the time, uh, you know, bring this box back to the master bedroom and, and sweep up for us. And so David goes back there and suddenly he's pushed down by an unseen force onto the bed and he's Mm. freaked out. There's no one back there with him. And then he sees this, old man's sort of semi-transparent it's a ghost clearly to him and the old man's threatening him you know take down your crucifixes at home take down your your saint michael's prayers and your your religious medals and the kid david's freaked out as anyone would be and pretty much races out of the house and goes and sits under a tree on the front lawn of the house and refuses to go back inside he's done for the day like that's that his two brothers will go back in that room to carry some boxes as well and they claim that the door slammed on them and they couldn't get the door open and they're screaming and banging. And, and finally, they get the door open and there, something's weird. Something is really weird in this house, but it's only those three brothers that notice it. And so uh, this is all day one. Everybody's uncomfortable. And of course, people are angry because wait, this is not what we agreed to. Right. Uh, there should be the furniture should be gone. That apartment should be available. Um, Debbie's roommate from Bridgeport's getting ready to move up. And, and now what do we do? And so that first night, it's decided that everybody's going to sleep at the Glatzel's house because this this house is in no state to have Debbie and uh, Arnie stay there. So they all go back to Brookfield. And that's when things start to evolve quickly. All still July 1st. And the three bo- the three brothers are talking. And uh, suddenly the, the two brothers are like, something weird happened in that back bedroom. And then David says, wow, something really weird happened to me. And that's when he goes out to tell the adults. He goes into the kitchen. And he says, I got to tell you something. I think there's a ghost in that house. It's haunted. And at first they're like, you're just an overimaginative kid. You're just, you know, whatever. You're tired. It's been a long day. Um, but then David says, and this, this, this part freaked me out. So David says, I can see the old man from here in Newtown, miles away, hills and trees and all kinds of things in the way. But he can see the old man. And he says, he's angry. And he's coming this way. He can see the spirit coming from the next town over toward the house in Brookfield, getting closer and closer. And pretty soon, he says he's here. And then he doesn't call him the old man anymore. He calls him the beast.
0: And what's interesting, I thought, in all of the interviews I've watched, not only in the Shock Doc, The Devil Made Me Do It on Discovery+, Plus, but in other um, uh, vignettes that have been placed on the Internet and, and on other shows throughout history, they all stand by the fact that David Glatzel, although a young boy with a big imagination, was not prone to telling stories or lies. This was outside of his normal. Right.
1: Absolutely. And and so this kid is suddenly uh, scared, um, and he's seeing something that no one else can see in the house. It's important to point out at this point that the Glatzel family are devout Roman Catholics. They go to mm-hmm. church uh, regularly, and um, so... When things start to get stranger in the next couple of days, where where David is now s- tormented, right? Something something's pushing him, scratching him. Uh, they're worried about him, and and it doesn't seem to be psychological because they know their kid. And again, like what happened? He just spent a couple hours in this house in Newtown. He didn't go away for a week, and something horrible. It was just what happened. And so uh, they reach out to their clergy, which is what you would sort of expect. And right. keep in mind, this is 1980. There are no reality shows on the paranormal. There's no internet, right? You go to your church and you keep it quiet. And that's exactly what they did. And the priests come out and they, they say blessings on the house. They light candles. They they leave religious medals and things like that. But they see that there's something really wrong with young David, that he's being attacked by something that no one else can see. And that's when the, the clergy suggests, hey, there's this couple in Monroe that's sort of looks into this stuff, uh, sometimes even investigates for the church, you might want to call Ed and Lorraine Warren. And I can tell you, David, having grown up in that area, like that's just something every local would know. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. you you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be at the grocery store being like, oh yeah, house is haunted. The kid's getting attacked. But if you so much as confided in any neighbor, like something really weird is happening. If you have like five neighbors, two or three of them would know about the Warrens. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's just that's it's just how that's that's how it was, and so they called Ed and Lorraine Warren, and Ed and Lorraine Warren came right over. Uh, I think it was ten o'clock at night when they they came over for the very first time to check it out. Now let me ask you something. We're mm-hmm.
0: also skeptical in nature, both of us. Sure. Now, people need to also be aware that the Amityville Horror experience and the book and the movie have all come out about this time as well, right? So. Gosh. Is uh, there a couple, a couple years off? earlier, but not too long right. yet. Right. So, Hey, what if, you know, we've got this house that sucks. It's not what we were expecting. Not what we promised. Uh, what if we say it's haunted and we get out of the lease that way? Do you think there was any thought about that being a part of this process? Um, but it, with that said, if my understanding is the woman that did live there also witnessed and saw things, is that correct?
1: Yeah. So, uh, it's July 3rd when -hmm. they go back to the house in Newtown, the woman that lived there before has now come to get, I think she had her waterbed there. Like she was coming to get the last of her things. And Debbie sort of confronts her and says, Hey, look, you know, my, my brother seems pretty freaked out by something here and, and sort of presses her. And finally the woman says, yeah, I think, I think the back bedroom's haunted. And, and like, that's about the end of it. And I'm getting out of here. Like I got my stuff. I'm gone. Good luck. Uh, That's the same time Arnie Johnson goes down to the basement and um, in the basement, there was this weird structure that was built of like plywood, but he couldn't get in it. It was just like this locked up thing. And it it makes you uncomfortable when you can't get into something that's Mm -hmm. been placed there. Uh, And he said, as he was walking out of the basement, something tapped him on the shoulder and there was no one else down there. And that sort of freaked him out. July 3rd is, is when they start arguing with the landlord about, you know, we want out of this lease, the place is haunted number one. But to me, the bigger issue is that apartment is supposed to be empty. So we have the other person to pay the rent that we can afford. And that that's, this is not the deal at all. I would get out of that lease too. I think in right. this case, I think in this case, you got to rule out, uh, they just didn't want the place because of ghosts. Like they had a super rock solid excuse that no one would argue with this is not the deal we signed on for, right? We we signed on for a house and an apartment and you're telling us it could be another month or two before that apartment's ready and that's not going to work.
0: All of this is so convoluted, right? I mean, there's just so many different twists to this that don't make sense with what's going on. Now, did this roommate, do we know anything about the the woman that was renting the little apartment? Was she feeling or dealing with anything supernatural?
1: Yeah, we don't know much about her. We know that she was the daughter of the landlord. She sort of had a a horse in the race to not you know, rock the boat too much. Plus, like she was making problems for her mother. You know, like uh, by not getting out of there. Oh, who knows what they agreed to or didn't agree to? We just know that you know when they got there, this this person was was there, and this this house is no longer going to work for uh, really these what five six people, right? The the right. roommate, the three daughters, Arnie, Debbie, and Debbie's son. So six people into this house and apartment. So yeah, I I think I think it's fair to rule out just got cold feet on a lease. Uh, they wanted out of Bridgeport. They wanted to live in a house and um, and, and start their lives.
0: I wonder if, if Ed and Lorraine ever considered that the woman who stayed behind, the daughter, was she responsible for conjuring these things to get these people out of the place she did not want to leave?
1: So what's interesting is by July 3rd, 4th, 5th in there, like just you know, mm-hmm. five days right? since it started, the story is no longer anything to do with Newtown right? Newtown is, is uh, an afterthought now because the entity has moved to Brookfield and not even really moved to Brookfield. It's attached to David. It's all about uh, David. That's that's what seems to be going on. So was the house a conduit or was the house uh, inconsequential, really? It just was an opportunity. I, I don't know.
0: This demon, this dark force that, that mm-hmm. uh, looks like a man during the day and a beast at night. Again, the question remains, which is, one of the most terrifying elements of the story to me, like you and I know, a lot of times it's in inviting things in. But David seemed innocent of all of this, yet the force attached itself to him. And now, so people understand there's infestation, which is what this appears to be at first. There's oppression, which is the slowly breaking the people down, and it pressing and pushing which is kind of what it was doing to date well not kind of it was definitely doing to david the the hopes is it's trying to break you down to the point where you give it that free reign and it kept telling david i want your soul right you belong to me give it well, up
1: I, actually no i I, th- I think it said i want a soul the assumption was david But later on, the narrative would sort of get rewritten to like, well, why would you assume it was there for David? David was the way in for sure. And David had huge problems. However, maybe David wasn't the target. Maybe the target or maybe the target was anyone. It was it was taken, whatever it could get. But then, you know, the the clergy gets involved and then Ed and Lorraine get involved. And when the warrants come over, and I think it was within days of all this beginning, right? Like uh, once Mm -hmm. the priests come and and. When the Warrens come, it's it's in the evening and they bring with them a medical doctor. If I remember correctly, uh, I think the doctor just stumbled walking up to the front door, just like, you know, tripped over his own feet. No big deal. But then they get inside, they sit down at the table and David made a comment about the doctor tripping. And that perked Ed Warren up immediately because no one saw it except the Warrens outside. It was just someone stumbling. You know, you weren't there yet, you know, this thing that happened. And so Ed started to test david and david could see things that was that were happening in the other room well not david but the entity within could convey the information sort of like seeing through walls and and now ed warren is is kind of given this thing his full attention that all right i don't think this is fake i don't think this is imagination um you know there's something really off with this kid and uh and and now they're they're involved and now ed and lorraine are are Dealing with this case as a, a possible possession case. How scary do you think it has to be for
0: everybody involved that you go to the church, which really should be the authority on this, and you go for help, they come and they see scratch marks and bruises and and many different things that are outside of that realm. And the church says, You better call Ed and Lorraine. I mean, that's kind of bizarre to me, right? That the church, who you think would be the ultimate help in this, are like, oh, uh-uh. Go talk to the Warrens, right? And and that was Father Dennis, I think, that referred them over to Ed and Lorraine. They all see the welts and bruises. And at one point, he said he was being stabbed. And there was a huge mark that appeared like he had been stabbed. You know, not an incision, but a welt. How does a doctor come in and look at this and not think there's some kind of abuse taking place?
1: Okay, this is where we have to uh, set some context for all of the Great. things you just said. Mm -hmm. Right, so the book that came out, I think it was in '83, right, about Mm -hmm. this case, was very much told with Ed and Lorraine Warren as the hero. Mm -hmm. This movie, The Conjuring Three, is Ed and Lorraine Warren as the hero. And Ed would tell you, you know, when the church is scared, they call me, right? Right. Because that, that, and I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think Father Dennis gave up on the Glatzels, right? They were they were still going to church regularly. I think he was checking in with them, but I think uh, he also understood. Uh, the more evidence that they could gather, maybe there's more that they could do for for the Glatzel family. Because mm-hmm. in Catholicism, you don't just knock on the door and ask for an exorcism. Like it's, <laughs> there's a whole rigmarole, you know, it's sure. um th- there, there's an investigation. And so the way it works today, it is, this is how it goes. Like if you believed you had a real problem, you would go to your church and you would talk to your priest. And if your priest suspected at all that you're, there might be something to this, the priest informs the diocese and the diocese has an investigator within the diocese somewhere. You don't know who it is. It's, it's a sort of a secret, but that person gets activated to come investigate. There's a medical doctor. There's a um, you know, psychological evaluation. If they still think there's something going on, they go to the archdiocese and the archdiocese investigates. And then it goes to Rome. And then Rome sends an exorcist from somewhere in seclusion, somewhere on the planet. It's so there's that part of it. The medical doctor that Ed and Lorraine Warren brought, Let's be honest. He's a fan. He's a fan of the Warrens and he's a fan of the paranormal and he wants to see stuff. And so the Warrens say, oh, you're a medical doctor. We'll bring you on cases and we'll get your input. So yeah, I'm sure he, at the end of the day, that that guy was still a medical doctor, um, but he's also working on a case with Ed and Lorraine Warren. So it's not like they hired him to come in as an independent person. He, he is a little bit partial and already believes in this stuff, right? And wants to see see for himself. So again, just sort of setting the right tone there. a little more um but you're you're right like if i see a kid all beat up my first thought is like are you safe here and forget demons like are, are there right. people doing this to you um i i agree i my brain would go to the same place but i think the warrens and this doctor had seen enough that first night to know that this 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 kid is is speaking in, in strange voices eventually he started using language he didn't know uh Latin and things like that, voices that, that didn't seem to come from him and, you know, being attacked by unseen forces. And so at and some point. It's
0: it right that he actually gives the name when they ask, who is this being? It states it is Satan. Yeah, sure.
1: That's what I would say, too.
0: Right, right, and and the reason I mentioned that is uh, one of the biggest points for exorcisms and deliverance is to know the name of the demon. It's easier to extract them according to the legend and lore for exorcisms. So for it to give its name, go to the big name. Right, you you might be Larry the demon cable guy. Right. And, but you're not going to say that you want them to really fear who you are and who are you? I'm Satan. Right. You want that. There's that intimidation factor of this thing to try to mess with anybody that's coming into contact, maybe giving them a second
1: to pause and think, I don't want to be a part of this. Well, even worse, uh, Satan or not, uh, the the entity claimed that there were dozens numbers. They wouldn't give a name, just numbers, right? There are mm-hmm. dozens of us. So I thought it was
0: forty-two, I think, is what yeah, it was, it was about, yeah. forty,
1: yeah, forty something. I, I'm not remembering the exact number, but it, yeah, it was like forty something of us. And people, you know, the, the people, the Glatzels would see shadows and things like that. And so uh, imagine the panic. And th- I know you're a dad. I'm a dad. It, keeping your kids safe is like, that's the first job. Like that's right. it. And so if your kid is being attacked by something you can't see, Oh, I can't even imagine no. the feeling of helplessness.
0: It's it. Well, it's terrifying. And as a parent, you're still a human. Let's yeah. uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll dive deep into this case. We've got more to discuss right here. Today's episode is brought to you by better help. What's the first thing that you would do if Say you had an extra hour in your day. Would you go for a run, maybe take a nap, read a book, or just show up for a friend? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Help, H-E-L-P dot com slash P60. It's time to take control of your life. Dave's here rooting you on. And if I can do this, you can do this. Let's do this together. BetterHelp.com slash P60. There's a link for it on today's program guide. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for tuning in. So we're talking about uh, the possession of David Glatzel. Uh, we haven't even gotten to the murder case yet, so I know we need to pick this pace up, but David Glatzel, this young boy, is being tormented. Uh, he's dealing with these hor- horrific things, marks on his body. The Warrens come in to try to help. You got to give it to the family. They were recording everything. They would record every time the kids started acting strange. So they have all this Fred and Lorraine to review, and while they're there helping... Ed is giving tips and hints to the family on what to do in the event that something happens when they're not there, and I've actually got some audio from that, um, uh, hearing it, and it's very disturbing. I just I'm going to give you a fair warning on that, folks. So, Jeff, I'm going to play this out real quickly, and this is actual audio from the Conjuring case and the possession of David Glatzel The name of Jesus, you? Jesus repels you. Leave this child alone. It's on your forehead. Yes, never. You are not strong. You're weak. You're weak, you're Ryan. Jesus Charlie. loves this boy. This Charlie. is, this is it a child. Wake him him up. something. He won't get out of it right now, Ma. He told me, bro. You won't uh, do nothing now. What do you think you've been doing? I am the Father and the Son in the There's Holy Spirit. Say, amen. amen. You gotta hold him down. He told me to.
1: Oh, your here. David, mommy's here. Mommy's here. Come on, wake up. Come on. Get up. Come on, let's go. Get out of here. Get out of my son. Get out of my son. Come on. Come on, son. Come on. Get, Get away from my son. No! i your mother. David, David. What about the boy,
0: y'all? Come on, David. whole bunch of Man, that is one of the most terrifying pieces of audio. You know, you're listening to this little kid and, you know, the mom's, you're my son. Man, that the you hear this voice from this child. It's inhuman. It's terrifying. Mother's calling out in despair. You know, this is my son. And, and he calls back if you couldn't hear it, he goes, you're a bitch. And then starts with that sinister laughing. And as Arnie's, and I thought it was impressive, right? Again, this is kind of playing into what kind of guy Arnie is. This isn't his family. He's 19 years old at the time the family's kind of bickering in the background. Arnie's focused, man. He's like, hold him down. They said to keep him held down. And he's praying over this kid, man. He's throwing everything he can at this kid to try to release him. And this thing's just mocking and that laugh at that (laughs) kind of laugh at the end is absolutely bone chilling. man. that is one of the most terrifying pieces of
1: audio period I've ever heard. I remember hearing this as a kid. Like the Warrens would play this clip, like this was a case they talked about, and you heard it, and you're like, "That's in new, that's here in this, you know, Brookfield and the next town over," and um, and I and I know it was in the documentary on on uh, Discovery Plus. It is bone chilling because it's it's so compelling. Arnie uh, is 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 trying to help, right? He's Mm -hmm. he's being altruistic, like you said, and that's ultimately what may have gotten him into trouble because there's a moment where Arnie is is watching david just get literally punched and and seemingly stabbed by some invisible force he jumps on top of him he, he takes the cross from around his neck puts it on the forehead of david and says you know pick on someone your own size take me instead and lorraine would tell you that's the moment when he invited him in sounds familiar right
0: oh it sounds very familiar <laughs> Come into to me. God damn you. Take me. Take me. So you've got a a page right out of the Exorcist movie, right? Yep. And and you have to wonder was Arnie influenced by this movie? Did he see that? Is that why he's thinking I've got to do something to help this kid come into
1: me? And, and uh, you know, you it's so important to mention The Exorcist. The movie came out in 1974, just six years earlier, and right. there's not too many people that did not see that movie. And if and Arnie would have been. Twelve, thirteen at the time, like, yeah, he probably saw that movie and it probably scared the hell out of him. The Exorcist was very much on, even though it came out six years ago, it was very much on, on the mind of the popular culture. So uh, so th- that was just a moment, but no one really thought much of it because nothing changed. David was still being attacked. Uh, the torment was still going on. But by September, the, uh, the Catholic Church had authorized the minor rite of exorcism, not the full-blown one. But they, they did get to go to their, their local Catholic church, and they went through the, uh, the minor rite of exorcism. It seemed to help, at least for a little bit. Um, but then it was back. Uh, the, the demon was back. But then on, um, I forget the exact now, date. And, and what's really kind of creepy about this, the
0: demon coming back, right? Ed and Lorraine were not even so sure. They're like, let's wait till midnight and see right. what happens. And here you've got a kid who claims to have been stabbed by this demon. Mm-hmm. When this thing manifests again and it starts taking over, David, he grabs a knife and actually threatens his brother, Alan, with a knife. And I think these are important foreshadowing for how this story unfolds, but right. it's it's pretty chilling. He, he snatches up this knife and he's threatening to kill his own brother, again, completely out of context with who this child is.
1: And just a dangerous situation, let's face right. it, not only dangerous for David, but now maybe dangerous for other people in the house. And I think that's why the church maybe moved along uh, the exorcism and anybody involved in exorcism will tell you they're usually not one and done, right? It's not like you get one and it's all set. It's it, it's a process and it can take uh, weeks, months, even years. One other thing, too, that's important to note about this case, Ed Warren had said, you know, you talked about the very stages from oppression to you know finally full-on possession he had never seen a case progress this quickly like that that you know from from you know invitation to oppression to possession can take months or even years for for lots of people and this happened in the span of like days a couple of weeks uh to get all the way there and so ed warren had never seen anything like it the first uh the first exorcism didn't seem to work, but then they're going to try one. Uh, I forget the exact day, but it was it was the the day uh, Virgin Mary is is celebrated in the Catholic Church. Right. That would be the day of the next exorcism. And and Lorraine Warren especially thought this would be a, a significant day and have the best shot of success.
0: Now I, we we need to mention as well though, and I don't mean to cut you mm-hmm. off, but no, the whole the whole family is now becoming affected. The mom is feeling this hand grabbing onto her Uh, she's being touched there's this black shadowy male figure that they're seeing now it's not just David now Arnie and the mom and the sister are having experiences this demon starts and and again you got to give it to his sister because she's taken copious notes and diaries of what's happening every day this thing is threatening the family threatening Ed and Lorraine, that if they continue to interfere, he's going to kill them all. Um, and this is when they they go back. And now was this third attempt,
1: was this when the levitation reportedly happened? I think that was the second one. I mean, so yeah, it's just escalating. Everything is just getting worse and worse. Uh, it's like nothing anybody had ever seen. And keep Love in mind, it patient,
0: Jeff. Levit this this kid yeah. is hovering above the bed and and yelling out, David's not here. I have his soul
1: that's that. what the hell that, no i know i mean i've never seen it right I, i've never right. i've heard of levitation i've never seen it and i struggled right. with that one right it, does it become mm-hmm. a fishing story where the kids writhing around and you go i think he levitated like did he or i mean i don't know you know it's, it's so hard unless you actually see it but uh but this family no doubt is going through something horrible and if when you watch the documentary um, when you see Debbie talk about what she watched her brother go through, she cries, right? right. She, she, all these years later, she's still choked up remembering what her little 11-year-old brother went through, um, which again, right now at this moment of the story is still very, very private. We're talking about a handful of people that know what's going right. on it is not being you know, documented for anything other than the Warrens and to get the kid help. That's the only reason they're making recordings, uh, because they want to bring it to the church and say, this is why we need an exorcism. The full Catholic rite of exorcism because of this tape right here and this tape and these notes and this and this and this and this picture. That's the case they're trying to make for the church
0: and they're they're making obviously a pretty damn good case because they send father was it father grasso and father virgilek out yep. to to take care of this so this is definitely escalated to a level they realize you know we can't just sit by idly waiting for psychological reports and medical exams there's something amiss here that we need to deal with immediately
1: yep and so at that point uh the young david goes through the rites of exorcism um, and, and I know it sounds too, uh, it, it sounds sort of anticlimactic, but after the third one, it's peaceful. It seems to be over. And this is September, September of 1980. And it, keep in mind, it started July 1st. So, you know, uh, just two and a half months or so, it, it seems to have reached a conclusion. And not only that, after the, everything calms down for the family, for Arnie and Debbie, uh, life seems to be getting better because now they're about to move into their own apartment in Brookfield Debbie's a dog groomer so there's a dog groomer that has a, a business and there's an attached a couple of apartments that she can live in for free her and Arnie and, and Debbie's son and uh, and it seems like they're they're getting their life going which is great um, but it's not quite over yet um,
0: now help me out on this because again watching the documentary um, it, it appears that the priests are working on David, trying to help him, and because of his writhing and the pain and the screams, they stop this exorcism. Which the first Lorraine, thing, right? Ed and Lorraine are like, "That's a really bad idea because now you got to start from square one again." Right. Uh, and this kid's already showing you everything you possibly need to see that he's in in danger. But the family is at that point. You know, this uh, you're killing David. You've got to right. stop. And again, watching his body twist and writhe and scream as he's being hit with water, holy water and and everything. Uh, and there is a very real... They've talked about this numerous different um, movies and documentaries. There is a very real chance that, that the afflicted could die during these rites of exorcism. And there was an it, it, entire movie, that The Exorcism of Emily
1: Rose, that talks about that. Yeah, it's brutal. Um, yeah, that was the first one because Lorraine had said uh, it was a mistake to stop the exorcism. Like, cause like you said, you're, you pretty much have to start over. And that's why that first one didn't work is you, you mm-hmm. stopped short. You didn't, you know, drive the demon out. Um, so yeah, so that's the, um, the, the process going on. Um, now
0: in the second one, is that when Arnie is also involved in saying, take on me, you know, be a part of
1: me, get out of this kid. I believe that happened at the house. Okay. Uh, I, that's that. That was one of the one of the moments the kid was getting attacked, and Arnie was just trying to stand up for the poor kid, you know. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that 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 one occurred at the house. But uh, but two. But the exorcisms. But were all at Arnie the church-
0: opened that door, right? So this this affliction is still dealing with the child. They go to root this child out. Do this this final exorcism. The kid seems relieved. There's this respite, mm-hmm. and then there's quite a, quite a while because that was all in July and it isn't until like September of, of what, 1980.
1: That- no, September is the exorcism.
0: Oh, that is. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so it started July 1st. September is the exorcisms, all three. Gotcha. Um, okay. Yeah. And so by, by mid September or so it's over, it's, hmm. it's, it's over uh, for, for David, he's, he's got peace and, and, you know, the family's on edge for days, you know, they're waiting for midnight and midnight comes and goes and he's still okay. And another day and another day and he's still okay. And so everybody starts after, you know, a couple of weeks of peace seems to be behind them and they start to move on with their lives. Um, and, and that's when Debbie and Arnie, you know, find a new opportunity to live in, in town in Brookfield mm-hmm. and um, and get into that apartment. And, um, and it seems like a pretty good deal. You know, Debbie's got a job as a dog groomer, her landlord and boss, um, you know, they're friendly, they're on friendly terms. They hang out together and, uh, and they've got this place and and things are going okay until February of 1981 um, and that's when the event takes place that um, kind of changes everything
0: right uh, all right let's let's lead up to this now what do we know about Arnie um, you know I really obviously he's talking about through the documentaries that he was just a nice guy and he was he was congenial but I thought that I've also heard that you know when he was known to drink he might get a little Unruly, as some of us do, uh, you know. Is
1: do you do you know if there's any truth to that aspect of the story? Uh, I I guarantee you there's truth to that, okay. <laughs> Which will become evident in a moment. Okay. Uh, um, so the other person who liked to drink a lot was the landlord slash friend slash boss, right? Uh, mm-hmm. A guy named um, Alan Bono, and uh, Alan Bono was kind of like this worldly guy. He lived in Australia for a bunch of years and. Um, just really, you know, an interesting guy, but likes to drink, and so, um, you know, notorious for like, hey, let's just get some drinks and just keep drinking, and 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 they that was not an uncommon thing for them to just kind of hang out and and whatever. But it was February sixteenth, nineteen eighty one, when Alan, uh, actually, Arnie woke up that day sick, mm-hmm. and he'd never missed a day of work, and but he didn't feel good. He didn't feel good at all, and so. Uh, he actually called in sick, which was highly unusual, but after sleeping for a few hours that morning, he sort of felt better and he gets up and he goes downstairs to the dog grooming place and Alan says, Hey, let's the three of us go to lunch. Let's go out to lunch and and get some food. And so they go and, uh, they start drinking wine at lunch, uh, on the 16th and they come back and Arnie, you know, fixes the stereo in the, the dog groomers place. And, and Alan just keeps drinking throughout the afternoon. And by the, by the late afternoon, he's like, Hey, let's not stop the party. Let's go up to uh, your apartment and, and we'll get some pizza and we'll just keep drinking. And Debbie knows because this has happened before. She's like, no, 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 Alan, let's go to your apartment to continue the party because you know, uh, right. then, then they have the ability to leave, not kick out their boss, right? Uh, her boss. So, uh, so they go up to Alan's apartment and, and the, the drinking continues. They get some pizzas. Um, They're they're getting a little bit belligerent. Everybody's pretty drunk. And Debbie wants to leave. Uh, Alan's like, no, 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 stay. And I think he tries to grab her. And that's when Arnie sort of snaps a little bit and and gets, no, no, we're out of here. We're leaving. And pulls Debbie out of the apartment. And they start to walk out. And Alan chases them. And then that's when Debbie says something completely changed in Arnie. Uh, His face changed, his facial expressions. He was not there, he was not himself. And she says, all she recalls is the two men sort of collided like they're fighting. And the next thing she knows, Alan just slumps over onto the ground and she sees a knife on the ground glowing. And Arnie is in a daze and just walks away. And she didn't know where the knife came from. She didn't know anything. But suddenly this guy slumped over. They, they call the ambulance, call the police. He's rushed to Danbury Hospital and Arnie just wandered off into the night. Uh, a couple hours later Alan will die from being stabbed uh, multiple times um, and he's gone and and Arnie is picked up about two hours later by the police just wandering by the woods by the street and 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 the police even said like you know he was just dazed he didn't put up a fight he was confused like go with us okay sure I'll go with you if you want you know that's fine and and uh gets gets in the car and and brings it in let me tell you how small Brookfield Connecticut is this was the first murder in the history of the town, ever. The, the hundreds of years it had been there. There had never been a murder. To the police, this looks so open and shut. Two guys drinking all day. They fight. Maybe, you know, the landlord made a pass at the girl and people got mad. Someone had a knife, stabbed the other guy, killed him. This is it. It's over, right? That's, that's an open and shut case for, for murder. And then Ed and Lorraine Warren get involved again. And that's when this—that's why we're talking about this right now. If if that was the end of the story right there, it'd be gone. It would be so obscure, like we would never ever talk about it, and you never would have heard about the exorcism. But right here, Ed and Lorraine Warren jump in and say, "Wait a minute! Uh, Arnie was there for all these exorcisms. He was there in the house. He's not responsible for his actions. He was possessed, and therefore should not uh, be held accountable." They, they, they uh, help hire Marty Manella, a lawyer who's a, a, a devout Roman Catholic, and, uh, and, and, and they're instrumental in saying, look, we want to we bring exorcists, priests, clergy, put them all on the stand and prove that uh, exorcism is real, that people can be possessed, and that ultimately Arnie Johnson should not be convicted of murder because he was not under his own power.
0: Now, what do you think about the case that when David first had his experience, the first mm-hmm. question, Arnie, and he says it in the documentary is, Hey, did you find some pills? Maybe you took a pill or Were you, you know, he's alluding to maybe there's drugs around. Right. And it might have been, yeah, could have been, uh, Debbie sees the knife and it's glowing. Right. And, and he, Arnie's in this kind of weird haze you know, is there any mention during any of this of drug use or, you know, uh, anything that would lead us to believe that maybe it was more natural than supernatural?
1: I, I, I saw no, I mean, in the books and in the newspaper articles, I saw no mention of drugs, Mm -hmm. but everyone freely admitted they drank all day. right? Right. So there was absolutely alcohol. Um, so, so we know that for sure. Um, but now, yeah, again, here's
0: here's the the headline of the day: Brookfield Demons murder trial to open with devil for a defense. So this is this is record breaking, right? I mean, the fact yeah. that we're gonna we're really what they're gonna do is put the devil on trial in this case because they want to prove that this is real. And I've got to guess this is a. a Obviously, it's getting a lot of attention. the The attorneys kind of like, yeah. Hey, let me see what you have to say before I agree to this. They show the outline of everything that's gone on, right?
1: And again, play the tape. The tape is the thing. Manelli says convinced them hearing that audio. Right.
0: Now, you've also got a kid who claims to have been stabbed by this demon, pulls a knife on his own brother at one point, and then how does Arnie kill Mr. Bono? With a knife. With a knife. Yep. It's pretty pretty interesting and compelling to follow that thread through this as well. But they're, they're really trying to build this case up. And I, I wonder, you know, I mean, you, you talk about this before it even goes to trial. How
1: is that impacting and affecting the people of the community at the time? So it, it the Warrens turned it into an international media circus. There's no mm-hmm. question. Because they started saying, like, you know, hey, you put your hand on the Bible and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, so I help you God. The court believes in God. Don't they have to believe in the devil? And I love, you know, and you can see this in the documentary, some of the man on the street interviews from from 1981, you know, the old, you know, well, what do you think? Like, oh, I think it's ludicrous. Do you believe in God? Well, sure I do. I go to church. Well, don't you believe in the devil? Yeah. And you can see the sort of discomfort start to come right. over their face where they're like, yeah, maybe I'm not so sure, you know? And, um, and and so for some people, it was like, yes, this this not only validates, uh, you know, what may have happened but it validates my belief system my roman catholicism it validates you know that there are angels and demons and god and devil and so on i I, what no one talks about in this is how incredibly uh, from a potentially selfish place ed and lorraine warren were coming i don't think it was so much about getting arnie off for murder i think it was about validating their work and them Mm -hmm you know, in the court of law, Ed Warren was hung up on that. He talked about this case over and over. Um, and, and, the th- and, and a quick other case he worked on that he bragged about every chance you'd give him is I proved in a court of law that ghosts are real, And this was in a completely separate case in Connecticut. A woman moved into a haunted apartment and, uh, he went and, and presented all this evidence and said, this place has a stigma. It was haunted. The landlord knew it. And my, you know, this this person shouldn't be held liable to the lease. And ultimately, uh, the judge allowed them to break the lease. Maybe not believing in ghosts per se, but at least saying, well, the place had a stigma and you didn't disclose it. Um, and, but Ed took that as validation for his life's work. And he got to prove ghosts are real in a court of law. That's how mm-hmm. Ed would tell the story. And this was him trying to do that on a huge scale, right? There's a murder involved. And so I don't even... I don't know how much he cared about Arnie Johnson or not. Um, but I think for him, it was more of an opportunity to grab the spotlight, to be in the spotlight, to be in the media and validate everything and, and, and just put it all there in front of the judge, not just the, the court of, of, uh, the legal system, but the court of public opinion.
0: Now, I don't, a lot of people had asked me prior to this, um, program tonight did did ed truly suffer a heart attack as portrayed in the movie the conjuring during this case was there any any kind of medical condition he dealt with i thought that was years and years later i that's what i thought as well but they in in the movie no i don't think so yeah he suffered a stroke and i think in 2005 2000 early part of 2006 um so yeah they they show that in this movie as though the the demon is trying to stop ed warren at any cost so he suffers a heart attack and he's kind of throughout the movie dealing with the repercussions of that but i didn't know if he ever talked openly about being a- affected
1: or afflicted from dealing with the demon in that case he talked about being affected and afflicted all the time he's, He, mm-hmm. you know he would say stuff follows me home like that the, they have my number uh he talked about being on uh, i think it was like interstate 84 or something in pennsylvania and, uh, and, and he said, it. you know, a demon attacked his car and they, they drove off the road. Like he blamed it on a demon, like all the time, not for this case in particular, but just in general, uh, he was quick to say that, that they had his number and he had theirs. Uh, Ed believed he was a, a warrior, right? He was not just a, a ghost investigator trying to capture a ghost on film. He was a religious warrior who, who, came from a very Roman Catholic background, had his weapons, which would be holy water and crucifixes and religious medals and prayers, uh, and, and and believed in evil and believed in fighting evil. That was his his line over and over again. And this case for him brought it all together. However, uh, it, the demon didn't have to stop Ed Warren. The demon had to stop the judge because <laughs> that's right. who's ultimately going to make a lot of decisions here. And that's, uh, that's when things changed on the case is when, uh, when the judge sort of opened up the proceedings.
0: Right now, this is, and this is pretty, um, pretty bizarre, right? I mean, they're going to go to court. They've already talked about the the fact that they're going to really put the devil on trial. Mm -hmm. You get your attorney in there. They do their opening deal. He stands up to make his opening arguments and the judge, the judge steps up and he goes, Hey, let's just get this straight. Yeah. this demon defense shit it is, it's not going to cut it in a court of law. yeah uh, not I'm all. not saying the devil doesn't exist, but it, it can't in this story. we need to just focus on this, which means that then Marty Manila has to flip quickly mm-hmm. and figure out a new tact with really no time on how do you deal with this This was your your battering ram to shatter you know the glass ceiling and put this on trial. Do you I, I, obviously, Edna Lorraine believed Arnie was possessed?
1: Hey, um, real quick, did you see the date on that article you just put up? Let me pull it up here.
0: October 29th, 1981.
1: Two days before Halloween. I don't know. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, no, that's,
0: yeah. A judge Wednesday threw out the demon defense of a murder defendant who claimed he was possessed by the devil when he stabbed a friend to death. I'm not going to allow the defense of demonic possession. Superior Court Judge Robert J. Callahan told lawyers Arnie Cheyenne Johnson on the opening day of Johnson's trial. Evidence of demonic possession Is simply not relevant. Now that's an interesting comment to me. That's not, he's not throwing it out, but he's saying it's not relevant, but it, it, it should be relevant, right? Again, all of the laws that we have are predicated on the Bible and God and thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not do this. But then the concept that the devil doesn't exist or that he has no power or authority over us is kind of an interesting
1: This this to me, this is what, this is the best part of this discussion of this whole case, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Let's say the devil possessed him Mm -hmm. and and made him kill Alan Bono right there. So if you believe in basically any of the major world religions, we have free will. Mm -hmm. We have free will to choose to do good or choose to do bad. If a demon can completely overtake our body uh, and then we lack free will. And so, come on, right? That's not, that's not how it works. We have to be able to overcome those urges. We have all been in rush hour traffic, all of us, <laughs> at some point, right? right. And Let's someone cuts you off, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like riding down the breakdown lane and cuts into traffic, and you're like, I want to kill you, but we don't, right? I'm angry. I'm gripping the wheel. I'm right. super mad. But, but the I free don't. will aspect, the free will
0: aspect is that David – would not yield he said i'm you know no you can't have my soul i'm not giving up my soul he fought it but this thing kept breaking him down it kept with the oppression and infestation to the point that as a child do you at some point say to end it stop yes that's how torture works right that's right. waterboarding and torture is you you eventually get the person to a point where free will is gone i fine fine if it stops my pain take it away so to say you know that that. We you know it affects free will, well, it does. that's the whole concept is we have to freely give of ourselves, whether it's in a moment of desperation or not. it's that moment of just fine, take me." And Arnie said, "Take me, get out of the boy, take me, opening that door. So I understand your point on this, but I'm just saying as the supernatural aspect of it, it it's compelling to me that you'd love to see this play out in the court of law, not for um, entertainment focus, but to see what their concepts of this would be. And isn't it interesting, just as an aside that on the first day of court, while they're getting ready, lights are flickering, strange things are happening in the court and, uh, they're, they're sending, um, maintenance to go and maintenance cannot figure out why these things are happening. Right. Right. And then the the judge is like, "Mm, let's just stop this BS right now. There is no demons. There's no devil. There's no possession.
1: So here's the other thing. Had the judge allowed this for some crazy reason, uh, after he's disbarred, by the way, um, (laughs) you know, 10 minutes later, um, uh, anybody uh, who's accused of murder in the United States would forever use this defense. All of them. 100 percent. No question. Atheists, religious people, non-religious people to be like, oh, yeah, Arnie Johnson. Yeah, devil made me do it. maybe the devil did but like how come i can resist in rush hour traffic to not kill a person but you couldn't stop it like well if 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 you lack arnie's case
0: in arnie's case he was schweeling i don't you know this when we go out i don't drink that often when we do live events because there's two daves there's cuddly affectionate dave and then there's i'm going to kill somebody dave and i've learned that line so i'm very cautious like when i go to events and my wife is there I don't drink. I let her drink and have fun because she's attractive. I don't mind men looking at her because why not? She's attractive, right? And and I'm and cool. That with that. Uh, but when I'm when I'm drinking, all of a sudden Jeff looking at my wife, bad thoughts start coming into my head. Right? Yeah, but and you know I'm uh, not
1: looking at her. I'm looking at you.
0: I know, but uh, but I'm just saying. So in those instances there's a weakness if this devil has now got this weakness on arnie and he sees this guy's drunk this is my chance yeah he's already invited me in and right now his resistance is nothing i can control this that but, that's an interesting aspect to the supernatural side
1: so hold on i want to talk to drunk dave for a second can
0: you <laughs> okay. get which one do you want affectionate drunk Dave, no, no. or i'm going to kill somebody drunk i'm going to kill
1: someone okay ready mm-hmm. uh angry violent drunk dave mm-hmm. are you there Oh, I'm here. What do you What do you want? Have you ever killed anyone? Maybe. <laughs> I
0: think my lawyers would tell me just not to speak right now. Right. right? Yeah.
1: So you haven't. You have right. not. So no, no matter how could, much you wanted to, you didn't.
0: But I could see in those instances, right? Uh, I'm not making excuses, but you could see in those instances. I guess I am making excuses. You're that, making excuses. That's when your tolerance is lowered. Listen, we're all one bad day off from being a killer. We're one. You you walk Absolutely. in on somebody on top of your wife or daughter, yeah. violating. There's no doubt you've of just course. become a murderer, right? Yep, no question. Yeah. I mean, no. theoretically, you'd call me, and a tarp and a, a shovel would appear, right. and I'm going to need you some bleach <laughs>
1: and a shovel, Dave, and some help. Uncle Dave would help make these yeah. things disappear. Don't ask anything. Just <laughs> no just start digging. Uh, no, I, I get that. I get that. Uh, I remember if shoot for ghost adventures, I was interviewing a, uh, a corrections officer at one of the many haunted prisons. We filmed that and, and he said, sometimes you realize the difference between you, a corrections officer and the inmate is like literally a, a 15, 20 second period of time where someone made a horrible choice and now they're in here. And, and in other circumstances, like you guys would be fishing buddies. You know what I mean? Um, right. that's some people he's like, some people, I think were just born evil and they're, they're going to do evil. And the best we can do is just lock them up and keep them away from people to keep everybody safe. But a lot of people just made a horrible choice. Maybe the choice was to, was to drink that much. And and get yourself into a place where murder was an option, um, but whatever you're you're responsible for that, right? You are, res- and and so you mentioned before how how David tried to get worn down, worn down, worn down, but ultimately did not, you know, survived it, went through the exorcisms. Arnie
0: had but, a moment, but right? we don't know that. We don't know if David didn't because they just found David collapsed, and then things went horribly wrong. Did he finally say in a moment of desperation? To stop the pain and the abuse, fine, you can come in. And is that what then led to possession? Because levitation, eyes changing, vocal intonations is no longer oppression. It's no longer infestation. This is in him. So he may have broken at some point. But again, does the devil realize there's only so much I can do with an 11-year-old? But Arnie, Arnie's strong. He's young. I, I can do much more damage with this guy.
1: It's this whole case started this huge debate, a huge national, international discussion, Uh, Mm -hmm. but also too, you know, I mean, you got to remember this, this sort of line of defense and, and even, uh, uh, prosecution has happened before, right? Salem, Massachusetts, 1692, uh, spectral evidence that the Salem in 1692 changed the world because spectral evidence, was no longer allowed in the courts and keep in mind we were England so that was that was on both sides of the ocean like no more mm-hmm. spectral evidence it's got to be hard facts not someone saying i see a shadowy figure whispering in, in her ear or whatever um and so i think i think the judge made the right call on this i really do um, oh
0: right no doubt yeah. like i said just the the researcher and investigator in me would love to have seen it play out to see you know them dismantle that that idea and concept. But then you hear man, I've been doing True Crime Tuesday for years. I've talked to prosecutors. I've talked to victims. I've talked to everything in between uh, and journalists. At the beginning of the Bundy tapes on Netflix, in the opening intro, they talk about, and then his eyes went black. And we actually have audio um, from one of the, uh, the authors who did a book about him talking about the fact that at one point when they uncovered the little girl's body and they bring it up in court, they said everybody could physically see Bundy's face contort and change. And this inhuman scent of sulfur Mm -hmm. emitted from him. So, You know, it's real easy to say, oh, this isn't possible. And we all want that to be the case because we don't want to believe anybody as awful as Ted Bundy could exist. But there are multiple cases where behind the scenes, the attorneys will talk and and they're in books. And sometimes it's just one sentence in the book that talks about the fact that there was something more at play in this human than just being a bad guy. I believe there was something inherently evil and or I saw this or I saw that, which leads you to believe there's something much darker about that person than just you and I getting drunk and being pissed off. Right. Bitch slapping each other in a parking lot.
1: (laughs) Stop. (laughs) No, I get it. I get it. But, and you know what? So maybe by the way, maybe this movie and this documentary and that cat, are forcing that the discussion that you want, right. That, that, that you're asking about, right. So maybe we're having it right now and getting people think, and that's why I, I love this case. Right. So it, you have to ask questions about free will. And I know we've talked to you and I have friends who are demonologists or, or work in this. who will say, well, when you relinquish your free will, like when you invite the demon in, you have given up your free will and thus, but I'm like, you know, but it's still, I, okay. Free will or not. Someone murders someone that I love, um, devil made you do it i don't care who made you do it you i want you punished right. to the fullest extent of the law
0: no i agree i i concur 100% with you on, on that but you you see these things and you you know it it makes you wonder what really is going on out there the the evil in in people you know and the what took place with my friend being murdered and two of her children slaughtered it's hard to believe that that's just humans that humans are that inherently evil that there's not something else
1: i don't think we are inherently evil but i do think evil's in the world and i think we all have a duty to not just ourselves but to our friends our family our neighbors strangers across town i think we have a duty to work at it and keep it away if i i mean i can't keep it away from other people i can keep it away from me you know what i mean and like i can do my part to try to like spread kindness and 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 love and good vibes and stuff like that and keep the bad stuff out uh, if we all do it, if we all do our one little part, you know, um, then then things get better. You know, I mean, that kind of evil happens when when people are in bad, desperate places. So how do we how do we stop that? How do we lift people up? And and I, I think that's um, it, it, there's, there's I really there's one question asked in the Bible, right? Uh, Am I my brother's keeper? Right? Uh, Cain killed Abel. God said, "Where's your brother?" And Cain says, "Am I my brother's keeper?" Arguably, the whole rest of the Bible, the whole rest of the book is trying to answer that question. You know, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for others around me? And ultimately, the answer is, is pretty much like, well, yeah, if you can help, you help. You know, if you can, mm-hmm. yes, please help your brother and everybody around you. Uh, and so I, I think that's that's our responsibility. And we, we owe it to our kids to teach them that. We owe it to lead by example and do our best to to make it better. Now
0: it it has to show an openness and willingness to accept this, even though you're in this court case, you know that they've been leading up to the devil is, you know, in in charge here, the devil made me do it defense. And then it gets thrown out quickly, but obviously it's still in the minds of jurors Mm -hmm. and of everybody because of the way this, this case unfolds, right? Because, you know, he, he is found not guilty of murder. Correct. And I think uh, November 24th, 1981, not guilty of murder, but he is convicted of manslaughter in the first degree. Right. So you've got this case that, that then tells a different story. And then he is, uh, sentenced to 10 to 20 years, um, in prison for this, for this crime. So it has to be playing. And even in the judge's mind, in, in the back of his mind, he's got to be in a, in a place where he could have really thrown the book and gone for the full letter of the law. But even the judge seems not that he's willing to admit that there's a devil at play here, but it seems like he, he was willing to bargain.
1: That's one way to look at it, but also two guys drinking all day, getting into a drunken brawl. Like there is a, a, there's got to be some sort of self-defense there, right? You're fighting. So, uh, but yet someone pulled a knife and killed somebody. Man's, I mean, if no one ever claimed the devil was involved, would he have gotten the same conviction is my question, right? Right. Uh, And if you looked at other comparable cases where, where no one claims they were possessed by the devil, just my gosh, we were drinking since noon. We got in this fight. I had my knife on me. I wasn't even thinking and I just pushed it into him and is that but you know he punched me I punched back and then I stabbed him right like it's not it's not murder but it's not quite self-defense either so uh, ultimately he only served five years in jail and and was out and because so, of uh, good
0: behavior which also tells right. you something about who this yeah. guy is was it that one moment? where we can all go good or bad. That one moment in that line and he cut and, and that was it. And that his true
1: nature was to be this good guy. He's out in five years. And so who's, who's soul did the devil get Bono's why Bono's like he was a murder victim. Right? So, uh, and Arnie, we don't know of any exorcisms that Arnie went through. So it's just over. The devil got what he wanted. The devil didn't get a soul. I mean, Bono might've been a great guy and gone to heaven. He was murdered. He's a victim. That's, that doesn't, the devil doesn't get that one. Right.
0: So what do you think then looking at the complete way this rolls out, knowing that there was a possession and an exorcism reported. And this kid mm-hmm. is now I, I also want to, on the skeptical side, as a kid, I used to be able to do weird voices and <laughs> rah, rah, And after watching the exorcist who didn't, you know, they, it's a lovely day for an exorcism, right? You just create all these voices. So, to, to say you know oh well this kid sounds guttural and, and creepy although he's out acting out of character he's acting strange uh he's doing in, in seeing things and there are eyewitnesses that he's levitating that there other people are seeing things this all leads uh, eventually down the road to Arnie possibly being possessed to to create this murder what do you believe do you believe that a possession ever took place in this case
1: yes I do I actually I believe uh, uh, David David, I believe David was possessed uh, because the church got involved and the church does not just give out an exorcism ever. Uh, I was raised Catholic. They would not just give it away. Like you, they would have investigated and deemed it worthy enough uh, to do that. So I believe that there was something going on and I believe it mostly because of uh, watching Debbie describe what happened to her brother all these years later. That was this past year. She described it, right? Uh, um, you know, sad,
0: sadly, Debbie Glatzel did pass away in
1: April of recently, this, of yeah. This year. yeah, 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 so 2021. Just, just passed away, and so, um, when you see her emotion when describing the torment her brother went through, that family went through something, I have no question. Whether it passed to Arnie in that one moment, that one I struggle with, but I, I do believe the, the Glatzels went through something big, I sure do,
0: right? Uh, now. You know, Jeff, we've always been very open on the show to give both sides mm-hmm. a chance to to discuss this. And obviously we played out. I, I feel in your way that David Glatzel was definitely possessed. I feel that there is there's the possibility that Arnie was possessed. And maybe in that five years in prison, religion is a very big part of, of many convicts. Maybe he was able to beat back that devil. They just don't talk about it. But I, I did place a call, and I wanted to give the devil his due. And uh, I asked uh, hey, devil, did you do it? And he says, uh, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't the devil. So I don't know. You know, you can't trust the devil in these situations either. Uh, but what what a chilling, creepy case. Would you say this, this is truly one of the defining cases for Ed and Lorraine Warren?
1: It's one of a few uh, defining cases. And you had mentioned earlier that this might be the last Conjuring movie. Uh, if I were a betting man... And I have no inside information. Truly, I'm mm-hmm. just uh, the 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 case of Frenchie in Warren, Massachusetts. Right.
0: Satan's Harvest is the name of that book. Satan's Harvest. If you haven't read Satan's Harvest, folks, that's scared the living out of me. Uh, Amazing case. I know we're going a little long here. Cindy Brown weighs in. She always has some great insight. Kids are more open to spiritual energies, and so they're easier affected by something so powerful and evil. I would think that they would also be easier to break because their fear and because they don't want to be hurt or frightened anymore, that that could be part of it. We've got a question here from Heidi Lynn Schiffler Severson. Do we know anything about
1: Arnie's upbringing? So Connecticut guy, you know, the, the, we sort of jump into the story when he's 18 years old. Yeah, we don't know a lot about him, just that he's a you know local guy. And oh, uh, he grew up with Debbie, so they knew each other from childhood. But then, yeah, that's about it.
0: I thought Lorraine Warren said that Amityville case is what eventually was responsible for killing Ed. And that came from Richard Jennings.
1: I, You know, on that one, I think because Amityville was so famous, they were very happy to attach their name to it at any chance they had. Mm-hmm. This is where like, you know, and again, I'm not trying to knock them down at all, but like they made a living at this Mm -hmm. and it was part show, right? And so um, Amityville got everyone's attention all the time. In fact, when they drove off the road, I mentioned earlier about it, on Interstate 84, Ed had said like, oh, we passed this town and it's so beautiful out here. And he said, you know, I think not even Amityville can get to us out here. And that's when the car went off the road.
0: Aaron Higgins says, I was curious Amityville. if the movie While He's in Jail really happened with Ed and Lorraine. Do you know, did they visit with, the, with him in jail and deal with things there as well?
1: Once he goes to jail, like the story kind of ends. Like we don't, yeah. we don't hear about it. And, now, and so Arnie Johnson's in the documentary, right? And right. We, we get to hear from him. I have so many questions. I, boy, if we could track him down, I don't know if he's going to still talk or maybe he's, the the door's open now. I don't know.
0: Libby says, any information on where this demon went or where it came from? Did they ever do any kind of
1: research, do you know, on the house? The house in Newtown is just, it's just a place. There's no significance they attach to it other than this thing was sort of lingering around looking for an opportunity. And once you know, David came by, that was the opportunity. And then they don't talk about it again. Most of the action happens at the Glatzel house in Brookfield.
0: Jeremy says, I'm glad that Jeff is being real about the Warrens. I've always found them to be carnies. A lot of people kind of get that sense. You've known them and been friends with them. I, I believe that they believed in what they did a hundred percent.
1: They did. There's no question they believed in it, but at the same time, they also paid their mortgage with it. And so I've, I mean, I've watched them sort of like straddle that line. Like, you know, Hey, we we want to share this and we're spiritual warriors. And it's 10 bucks a seat to get in. Mm -hmm. And, and Hey, I mean, I've done it. You've done it. Right. Like we, we charge for our books. We charge to give lectures and programs at events and, and all that other stuff. Like we just do. And, and if people don't want to pay it, they don't have to, and they don't have to go. Right. So, There's plenty of stuff that we put out there for free for public consumption. So I get it. I get that you're trying to be marketable, but at the same time, be authentic. And that's a, that's the challenge.
0: You can follow Jeff and what he does and the things he's working on by visiting jeffbelanger.com. You can also check out one of the best resources on the web, ghostvillage.com.
1: That's a, that takes me back.
0: Yeah, that's a, you were one of the very first paranormal sites I ever came upon. Back in the day, I think you built it, was it
1: 1887?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But you're also the host of the very popular, our New England legends. Tell us a little bit about that and how people can find you and where they can listen to you.
1: Yeah. So the podcast is called New England legends. Uh, We do it every week for the last 202 weeks in a row without missing one and it's uh they're fun they're short like 10 12 minutes long uh scripted stories about weirdness in New England lots of ghosts weird history aliens lake monsters cryptids things like that um and it's just uh, sort of like how how did this legend get to right now is is what we explore and it's been super fun and
0: what's well, nice with with these they're very compact they're easy to listen to they're what what is the average time like anywhere between 10 minutes to 20 minutes long
1: 10 to 15 really um, right yeah, they're concise. We, we use voice actors. So when we get old newspaper articles with quotes, we have voice actors. Dave's, Dave's been the voice of God more than once when we have a biblical quote. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's been, it's been so, so much fun to sort of like, uh, celebrate these stories and kind of build a community around it.
0: Very cool. You can also check out, he's got a great audio book out there. Who haunts the White House? Jeff, it's always a pleasure catching up with you, man. Thank you for coming on and doing this. And uh, it's, it's a great time to have uh, pulled together on this. There's only one guy I would count on for this story and it's you. So thank you for doing this.
1: Thank you, Dave. Good to see you again. All right, everybody, stay safe. Be
0: cool. We'll be back again with more episodes of the Best in Paranormal Talk Radio. Make sure you check out our newenglandlegends.com for updates on Jeff, and go check out jeffbelanger.com. Jeff, one more time, tell them about your book, Kilimanjaro. This is one of the best books Folks, you're going to love this. And <laughs> I just
1: had a book come out a couple months ago called uh, The Call of Kilimanjaro, Finding Hope Above the Clouds. It's about my 2017 climb to the top of Africa in memory of my brother-in-law who had passed away from cancer. And it was um, really the most profound personal experience I've ever gone through, deeply spiritual, physical, and emotional, and um, just kind of soul-bearing. Uh, there's been a lot of great feedback so far. You can see the reviews on Amazon, but uh, wherever books are sold, The Call of Kilimanjaro
0: get it read it you'll love it it does have a great spirituality and and paranormal angle to it it's it's so well written everybody that i've talked to that's read it loves it right here on the best in paranormal talk radio i'm dave that's jeff